Well, good morning, church family. I understand from speaking with some of you that one of the great gifts that God gives us as a reward for not killing our own children is grandchildren. And uh, yeah, somebody's clapping over here. <laughs> I don't know what that says about your kids. Oh, you're sitting. <laughs> oh. Well, this weekend, our lead teaching pastor, David Beatty, and his, his wife, Beth, have the opportunity uh, to be in Chattanooga for the dedication of one of their grandkids, and we're glad that they have that opportunity to be there. If this is your first Sunday with us, welcome. We are so glad that you've joined us to worship the Lord. One of the best ways you can get to know who we are as a church is our vision frame. On the left side of that frame, you will see our values. And whether they are expressly stated or not, every organization has values, uh, whether it's a business or a sports team or even a church. And values drive behavior. As an example, in uh, 1963, President John F. Kennedy articulated a very clear vision for space exploration for our nation, land a man on the moon within a decade. But you know what? NASA just didn't strap a man to a rocket and light the fuse and bid him farewell, did they? No. I mean, that certainly would have been more a cost-effective way to accomplish the mission, and we would have got there a lot sooner. But because NASA valued human life, those engineers worked tirelessly to ensure that whoever landed on the moon would also have a decent chance of returning to Earth. An organization's values guide the actions. Well, we have these seven values that guide decisions here at our church. We are Bible-centered. We're prayer-fueled. We're spirit-led. We're generous-hearted. We're mission-minded. We're relationally connected and next-gen focused. These values influence things around here, like the way that we allocate resources and the way decisions are made and even the content for what we will study in our ministries and small groups. And as we continue our study of Luke's gospel today, we'll see why mission-mindedness is so important to us as a church. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to the gospel of Luke, chapter 15. This chapter has been called the heart of Luke's gospel. It contains three parallel parables that share common elements and convey the same message. Verses 1 and 2 provide the context for the parables. If you recall from last week, chapter 14 ended with a rather hard teaching from Jesus. And he finishes by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And it's interesting to see what we read immediately following that. Chapter 15, verse 1, and we know originally there weren't the chapters in there. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. How about that? There's irony in that, isn't there? It's the reprobates and the outcasts who draw near to Jesus. They sense that Jesus cares for them and he has something to say to them. Now this doesn't sit well with the Jewish leadership. We read in verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. 
the religious class had beef with uh, Jesus associating with this segment of the population, this crowd. Nowadays, it's no big deal to eat with someone, but back then, uh, sharing a meal was an act of fellowship. In Acts 11, we see that Peter leaves Jerusalem, and uh, when he returns, he is called to the carpet by the Christians that were of a Jewish descent for breaking bread, for eating with uncircumcised men. Jesus is, is being friendly with turncoats, these tax collectors who have more or less in the eyes of the population sold their souls to the Romans and are now enriching themselves at the expense of their countrymen. And these, these sinners, these people with the checkered past, and the Pharisees and the scribes are so ticked off by this, rather than refer to Jesus by name, we see they simply say, this man. Or in the Greek, it's actually this one. Now that's not a term of endearment, is it? That's how I refer to my kids when I'm telling Stephanie something one of them did that was a little out of line. Like, well, this one right here, you know thought it would be a good idea to put a whole roll of toilet paper in the toilet, you know. That's when you use that expression. So Jesus decides to respond to their murmuring, to their criticism, and he does so by way of a parable. We're told in verse 3 that these parables are addressed to the grumbling Pharisees and scribes, but they're also for the benefit of the crowds who are drawing near. And in telling these parables, Jesus explains his rationale for associating with sinners and tax collectors. This is the purpose of these stories. They provide an explanation, an apologetic for his actions. All three parables share a similar theme. We refer to these parables as the parable of the lost sheep and of the lost coin and of the prodigal son. But we could also refer to them as the parable of the searching shepherd and the searching woman and the searching father because they all deal with the efforts of a protagonist to recover something that belonged to them which has been lost. We'll narrow our focus this morning on the first two parables, which are identical in their literary flow. We see a loss, and then a search, a recovery, and then a celebration. As Jesus often does, he introduces his parable with a question. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Now, nowadays, we don't know a lot about tending sheep, but it turns out that a good shepherd is a lot like a good youth pastor. In the same way that you account for all your middle school students before you leave Carowinds, a shepherd's going to count his flock before putting the sheep up for the night. And in the story, he comes up one short. And what happens? That missing sheep receives special attention from the shepherd, doesn't he? He's going to leave the flock, and he's going to go search in the open country. For how long? What does Jesus say? Until he finds it. And once the shepherd finds his missing sheep, we see that he's very tender with it. He doesn't begin to ream out the sheep. What were you thinking? 
you dumb sheep, how could you be so? No, he's very tender and he puts it on his shoulders and there's rejoicing. Beginning now in verse 5. And when he is founded, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. The shepherd's joy is such that he can't contain it. He calls his friends and neighbors. I mean, this is what we do when our joy is great. When our joy is bubbling over, we tend to want to share it with others. We invite people to our weddings and to our graduations and to our birthdays. Because true joy must be shared. The shepherd wells up with this type of joy at the recovery of his lost sheep. It makes him so giddy, he starts sending out invitations. He starts getting the charcuterie board ready. He, he, he wants to celebrate with others. Now in verse 7, we get the application of the parable. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The point of comparison is that God's joy is like that of the shepherds when a sinner is restored. God's concern for those who are created in his image is so great that even the restoration of just one individual is cause for joy. There's, there's much rejoicing in heaven. Uh, Jesus then introduces a, a second parable, which parallels the first. He says, there, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. You know, the only prerequisite required to understand these parables is life experience. I think we can all relate to misplacing something, right? Maybe a ring or some car keys or sunglasses. And what happens when that occurs? Anybody else ever go digging through the trash can? Anybody else just go rifling through the car or checking all the, the coat pockets? Retracing all your steps you took earlier in the day? I'm thinking most of us can relate to this woman. A tenth of her savings has disappeared, so she undertakes a deliberate search for her missing coin. She lights a lamp to get better visibility. She begins to painstakingly sweep the house to make sure the coin isn't obscured in the dirt or concealed in a corner. Just like the shepherd, she goes to great lengths and doesn't rest until she recovers her missing coin. And her response at finding the coin is virtually identical to the shepherd's. There is rejoicing. Friends and neighbors are invited to come and join in the celebration. I heard last month on the news about a woman who was paddleboarding off the coast of Massachusetts, and she lost her balance, and, and she fell into the ocean. And uh, unfortunately, her balance wasn't the only thing that she lost because she had her phone on her. An iPhone 13. You don't need to raise your hands here, but I bet some of us would rather like lose a priceless family heirloom than our phone. 
Well, the next day, this paddleboarder returned to the beach, and it just so happened that there was a scuba diving class that was gathered there. She approached the instructor and conveyed what happened, and he relayed that to his students. And amazingly, a first-time scuba diver spotted the bright pink waterproof case with her iPhone 13 still in it, and this woman was so excited to be reunited with her her phone, that she gave that scuba diver a $300 reward. Just like the parables, there's just this joy that wells up when you recover something that's important to you. Once again, Jesus interprets the parable for us. He says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In the first parable, we're told there is joy in heaven, and here we see that there is joy before the angels of God. I don't think the difference should be pressed for any special significance. Both are just simply figures of speech that teach us that God rejoices in the presence of his angels when a sinner repents. The the courts of heaven are, are, are full of celebration whenever this happens. I mean, down here we, we celebrate when our team wins or when our kids do something good or maybe another trip around the sun. That's cause for the noisemakers and the party streamers and order the cake and, you know, cue up the music. Well, that's what happens up in heaven whenever a lost person is restored to God. That's what excites God. That's when the angels start high-fiving and fist-bumping and chest bumping. Now, if the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling before, what do you think their attitude toward Jesus is now? Here's this group of people who think they're close to God, that they speak for God, they embody what godly behavior looks like. And Jesus tells them, well, there's actually a great chasm between you and the kingdom of God. Because God's desire is to find lost people. And God's really happy with what's happening right now. And you just, by implication, if you had God's heart, you'd get excited about this too. You'd rejoice in it. But here's what really set their teeth on edge. Remember, they're asking rather condemningly, Jesus, why are you doing this? They want to indict Jesus for spending time with sinners and tax collectors in, in these parables. Jesus is essentially saying, well, when I sit down to eat with prostitutes or swindlers, I'm like the shepherd venturing out into the wilderness to find his lost sheep. When I eat with tax collectors and sinners, it's the woman lighting a lamp and sweeping her house. Jesus is saying, you want to know what I'm up to? Well, I'm the shepherd searching for his lost sheep. I'm the woman looking for her lost coin. And, and when I, whenever I break bread with someone who is lost, God is trying to recover something that belongs to him. Now, in a Jewish culture, that's a rather bold claim to make, isn't it? To even hint that when you spend time with sinners, those individuals can be restored to God. But that's exactly the point that Jesus is making. 
he is conveying to those who have ears to hear that he can reconcile people to God. And this would have been really welcome news to those who had drawn near to hear him. So what's the application for us? Well, I want to speak first to those of us who are believers. And then I want to speak briefly to the person here who might be exploring Christianity. This parable not only reveals God's heart for those separated from him, it also invites self-examination. Remember how Jesus began? What man of you, or as some translations have it, suppose one of you. He brings us into the story and he invites us to consider our own response. Are we going to be like the searching shepherd? Or are we going to be like the standoffish religious leaders when it comes to lost people? I think we all know which option we should choose, right? Show of hands. All right, who thinks we should be like the standoffish religious leaders? Okay, all right, I'm liking where this is going. Who thinks we should be like the searching shepherd? All right, yes. Those of us who desire to be disciples of Jesus understand that walking in his ways means that we should reflect his concern for the lost. But following in the way of Jesus, is it's easier said than done. You see, Jesus befriended sinners, but he did so for a purpose. He wanted to draw people to God. He, he associated with people living outside the will of God, and yet he never participated in their sin or affirmed them in, in their sinful choices, but he encouraged people to align their lives with what would be pleasing to God. If you remember in John 8 with the woman caught in adultery, what does he say? He says, go and, and sin no more. And to strike that perfect balance, to befriend and to call to repentance, it, it, it's difficult because it's easy to fall to one side or the other of that, of that tension that Jesus maintains, that perfect balance. And, and one can get off balance to one side uh, by befriending lost people, but then not really making any effort to draw them to God. I, I say that because one of the unwritten rules in our society of our contemporary culture is that it's really not anyone's place to tell someone else that they're wrong. I mean, the general sentiment in our culture is, you know, who, who are we to tell someone else that their lifestyle choices or their sincerely held beliefs are wrong? In, in many circles, communicating to someone that they're separated from God might be perceived as a really arrogant statement to make. In fact, in our culture, many would say that, you know, sin, that's, that's just a, a social construct. That's just something some people made up to control behavior through, through guilt and shame. And so we just need to toss that out the window. And you need to stay in your own lane because the way that we determine what's right or wrong is you just look inside yourself. And if, if it feels right to you, then it's probably right. And so... We, in the midst of that culture where we find ourselves right now, I know, I, I feel it myself, that it can be difficult to encourage people to embrace Jesus as their Savior. But we know that when Jesus had dinner with someone like a tax collector, say Zacchaeus, they just didn't talk about current events or how Zacchaeus' family was doing or 
Maybe how the Bethlehem Bombers would fare against the, the Jericho Jackals in the World Series. We, we, we don't know the details of that conversation, but here's what we do know. Over the course of the meal, Zacchaeus fell under conviction and he repented. And he acknowledged his unethical decisions and he committed to a new lifestyle. If we befriend lost people, but our conversations with them aren't any different from the conversations they have with their other friends, or our actions aren't any different from the actions of their other friends with the exception that we show up here on Sunday mornings, then we really aren't pursuing people the way that Jesus pursued people. Now, now there's another way we can get off balance, and that's by leaning too far in the other direction. We, we can make the opposite error and, and slip into a Christian bubble. Now, this isn't always the case, but I find this is more common for those of us who have been walking with the Lord for many years. We've experienced the, the blessing of fellowship with other Christians and, and the encouragement that comes from having friends who are like-minded and spur us on in the faith. And without any really conscious effort on our part, we can find ourselves isolated from the types of people that Jesus pursued, that Jesus associated with, that Jesus broke bread with. Our social calendar can become taken up with church events. If we do something on the weekend, it's with our small group friends. And that's not wrong, but we have to realize that it's going to require some intentionality on our part if we're going to walk in the way in Jesus and, and, and share his heart for those who are lost. We can't just hang out in a little Christian cocoon with other believers all the time. In John 17, Jesus prays uh, for a reason why he's not taking us out of the world and he's going to leave us in the world. You see, Jesus, he not only shows us the way to God, but he shows us the way of God. And this is why mission-mindedness is one of our values. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, we have to love what he loved. We have to pursue what he pursued. We have to do what he did. We have to get excited about the things that he got excited about. Now, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this passage challenges us in a second way. We are encouraged to, to reflect our Savior's heart for lost people, and we're also challenged to contemplate who that includes. We see Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. This was a, a segment of the population that was looked down upon. They were viewed with contempt. Now, these are the people who got the side eye when they went into the grocery store. These are the people that if you're pulling into the parking lot or you're pulling in the gas station that you would not want to park next to. These are the ones that uh, you didn't want your kids having play dates with. I wonder what the, the modern day equivalent is. Who are the, the people you might be tempted to look down upon? You know, there's so much division in our country right now. It might be different for each one of us. We're all tempted to put distance between ourselves and a certain segment of the population. It's just probably different for each one of us. Let me ask you this. What bumper sticker, when you see it, causes you to think, that guy? 
or, or, or if you were invited to a dinner party, who would you not want to sit beside? The person wearing the MAGA hat or the person wearing the Field of Burn t-shirt? Is it someone wearing a suit or someone wearing baggy jeans without a belt? Is it someone opposed to mandatory vaccines or someone that thinks vaccines should be required? Is it someone who wants to bring an end to fossil fuels or is it someone driving a Hummer with a six-inch lift? You see, we all have to guard our hearts when it comes to our attitude toward people who don't share our worldview, who, who don't think the same way we do, who aren't aligned with our thoughts. We can see a political sign in someone's yard or a bumper sticker on their car or a post on their Facebook page that we disagree with. And rather than feel concerned for their spiritual state, you know what we can do? We can grumble. We can, we can think to ourselves, how could someone be so stupid? Or people like this are going to bring this country down. P people like this are the problem. And then you know what happens next? It's so easy for us to then to put distance between us and those people that Jesus has a heart for. And what Jesus is conveying to his critics and to us is that we should be more concerned with where someone is going to spend eternity than who they're voting for in the midterms or, or what their position is on school choice or, or how they dress or what they think about climate change. If we want to be like Jesus, here's the challenge. During your next encounter with someone where you might otherwise be tempted to think, man, we'd be, we'd be a lot better off without people like that. Here's, here's what we should do. Just pause and then picture Jesus sitting down for a meal with that person or with that group of people. Picture Jesus with a smile on his face, passing them the, the roast beef and the mashed potatoes or the, the tofu grain bowl with the crispy broccoli as a side. Because if we understand grace, we know there's nothing shocking about that image. If we understand grace, it will excite us to think about Jesus breaking bread with that person. Because if Jesus welcomes them, you know what it also reminds us of? The fact that Jesus welcomed us. The fact that Jesus would want to break bread with us. Because you see, we're no different than the sinners and the tax collectors. There's nothing special about us that Jesus would say, oh, I want them as my dinner guest. The only reason that we're followers of Jesus is because he pursued us, because of his gracious initiative. And when we understand grace, we're blown away by the fact that Jesus would want to sit down and have a meal with us. And so it excites us when he wants to do the same thing with other people. In these parables, we see a shepherd who's willing to undertake risk. We see a woman who doesn't take some haphazard approach to her lost coin. She doesn't shrug her shoulders and say, ah, it'll turn up sooner or later. She's systematic. She's deliberate. She's intentional in her recovery efforts. You know, whenever something is lost, 
It's the value that we attach to it that's going to drive our, our, our efforts to recover it. It's going to determine the intensity of our search. If you leave an old water bottle at a park across town, you're probably going to write that off. But if it's a favorite jacket, you might go back for it. If it's a kid, you're definitely going back, aren't you? <laughs> Stephanie and I have twin daughters. They're 13. We also have a son who's in third grade. But I remember when the twins were about 13 months old. We were living in Dallas. We went to the grocery store down the street. And uh, we, we decided to divide the shopping list and kind of run man-to-man coverage and, you know, knock this out quicker. And uh, I remember telling me, telling Stephanie telling me, watch Maddie closely. And I'm, I'm sure I probably, like, rode my eyes. Like, what am I, like, Homer Simpson as a dad that you have to tell me to watch my own kid? Like, I got this. Uh, and we're in the produce section. And y'all, I swear, I only looked down for seconds. But when I looked back up, this kid was gone. And, 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 and the produce section is pretty wide open. You've got decent line of sight, and she is nowhere to be seen. You think I just shrugged my shoulders and continued on the shopping list? No. I mean, this is Dallas. This is a big city. You read crazy stuff in the paper all the time. I took off like I was in a track meet, canvassing the store. And fortunately, I found her a few aisles over. And unfortunately, she was with Stephanie. (laughs) Yeah. Some of you dads can relate. (laughs) The greater value we attach to something that's important to us, the more we're going to go after it the more effort we're going to put into the search. What value do you attach to your friends, to your coworkers, to your family members? I'm so glad that our Savior was mission-minded when he comes to us. You know what it says later in Luke? Jesus says, this is why I came, to seek and to save the lost. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, let his words sink in. What he's communicating to you is that you matter to God. You are the missing sheep. You are the lost coin. It says in Isaiah that we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And God is searching for you because he loves you because you matter to him. In fact, the story of uh, me searching for Maddie has some similarities with that third parable that Jesus told where a father longs for the restoration of a lost son. That love that that a parent has for a child is one of the strongest bonds that I can think of. And Jesus says, you know, that's how you can think about God's love for you. He wants to wrap his arms around you. He wants to receive you. And it's not hard to be found by the Savior. He doesn't make it difficult at all. All you have to do is stop running from him.
and let him embrace you. He says in Revelation 3.20, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And if you've never opened the door, I want to give you a chance to do that today, to do that this morning, and to be restored to your creator. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this reminder of the love that you have for us. Thank you that you came after us. Thank you that you pursue us. Thank you for your divine initiative that has reconciled us to you. Thank you for being the good shepherd. Lord, for the person here whose heart you've pricked, who recognizes now their lost state and wants to be restored to you, would you, would you be at work in their heart? And if you want to be restored, you can just say a prayer like this. Jesus, I recognize that it is my sin that has put separation in our relationship. And I thank you for coming after me. Thank you for dying on the cross and bearing the consequence for my disobedience. And thank you for your willingness to clothe me, to grant me your perfect righteousness because you lived the perfect life I could never live. And now, I want to follow you all of my days. Lord, as we go from here, help us to go with a more full of knowledge of how much you love us and what you did to restore us to yourself. May we go knowing how wide and long and high and deep is the love that you have for us. And all God's people said, amen.